0: Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from social media, news articles, his past audiobook recordings, and other spoken word projects, including those great writing projects that you send in. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Thank you, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. Welcome, you fans of the spoken word. This is Tom Reed's Your Story. I am Tom Zania, and I want to thank you for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're going back to one of my favorite audiobooks that I recorded and that I have so far only played, I think, the first chapter. And what I want to do is basically play either the second or third. I'm not sure yet. I'll tell you a a little bit later. I do want to tell you one thing though, and this is sort of an announcement about what might affect the schedule. I have joined an online casting company for voice actors, and it's one of those things that keeps you very busy running around not around the city but just running around from audition to audition online and producing these short little auditions sometimes as many as 20 or 30 a day and sending them in and hope in hopes of getting hired to do that job whatever that job is a commercial or e-learning video or whatever and so i might be too busy doing that to have uh, a podcast every week. Or what might happen is I might put out my podcast on a different day, like Thursday, something like that. And so I ask that you, if you are a regular listener, that you be patient with me and that you stick with Tom your story because I still very much believe in the purpose of the show. And that is to bring the spoken word to all of you or to as many people as possible. So, like I said today, um, we're gonna play through, I think it might be chapter two of Improvising Out Loud, My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act by Jeff Corey and his daughter, Emily Corey. And it's one of the probably one of the best things I've ever done for the simple reason is I do all these different characters uh, from real life, movie stars and things like that. And I'm very proud of it. And so that's what we'll do. How about that? Okay, good. I'm glad I'm glad you agree. We'll be right back after this. Jeff Corey was a great Hollywood character man who became blacklisted in 1951. In the book Improvising Out Loud, My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act, Corey recounts his extraordinary story. Among the actors who would soon fill his classes were James Dean, Kirk Douglas, Jane Fonda, Rob Reiner, Jack Nicholson, and Leonard Nimoy. In 1962, when the blacklist ended, Corey was one of the industry's first trailblazers to seamlessly reboot his acting career and secure roles in some of the classic films of the era, including Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, True Grit and Little Big Man, in which he starred as the infamous Wild Bill Hickok. His memoir, which he wrote with his daughter, Emily Corey, provides a unique and personal perspective on the man whose teaching inspired some of Hollywood's biggest names to star in the roles that made them famous. Improvising Out Loud My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act. Written by Jeff Corey with Emily Corey. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. And we are back. Now, like I said, today we are going to listen to a recording I did called of a book called Improvising Out Loud, My Life, Teaching Hollywood How to Act. Now, in case you've forgotten, this is a book about <clears throat> Jeff Corey. Jeff Corey is probably a face you've seen in older movies and television shows. He was a man who had a great career going until the McCarthy era. And then he was blacklisted for 10 years. And then uh, since he no longer had his career, he went into teaching and became one of the greatest acting teachers that Hollywood has ever seen. And this is a very interesting book. And I hope that you will go to uh, audible.com, <clears throat> excuse me, to audible.com and get it. Great book. He wrote it along with his daughter, Emily. And uh, it's a terrific book. It was very challenging for me, and I'm very proud of it. So let's listen to now chapter two of Improvising Out Loud, My Life teaching Hollywood how to act by Jeff Corey and Emily Corey. Chapter Two, Hope. I met my wife, Hope, in May 1937, when I walked my friend Naomi Schwartz home from a rehearsal. I can't remember what play we were working on, but I do remember it was great fun. As I entered Naomi's apartment, I saw the most beautiful woman I had ever seen curled up on the couch reading a book. Naomi introduced me to her roommate, Hope Victorson. Hope and I talked very briefly. I asked her what she was reading, and she replied, Old Calabria by George Norman Douglas. She looked at me for a moment and then said, I just finished it. Would you like to borrow it? Yes, I said, unable to take my eyes off her. Naomi, Hope, and I talked for a bit longer, and then it was time for me to leave. As I said my goodbyes, Hope put Old Calabria into my hands. I slipped the small green book into my coat pocket and left the apartment, having no idea that my life had just been changed forever. I still cherish that old copy of Old Calabria and keep it always on my bookshelf. A few days after meeting Hope, I got a job doing summer stock at the Maverick Theater in Woodstock, New York. I had to leave the production I was rehearsing with Naomi. I took Old Calabria with me. The Maverick was a wonderful theater. We'd do Ibsen's Hedda Gobbler and Shaw's Candida with only one week's rehearsal. The performances were marvelous. Woodstock had been a successful artist's habitat since 1902, and our audiences comprised waiters, painters sculptors, and musicians who were always enthusiastic about our work. I spent five months in Woodstock and then worked odd theater jobs before returning to New York. Six months after I met her, I returned Old Calabria to Hope. I had never known anyone like her. She was fascinated by art and art history. Even though I was a native New Yorker, I had spent little time in the city's many museums. Hope took me to the Metropolitan and introduced me to painters such as Brunelleschi, Leonardo, and Titian. I fell in love with the drama of El Greco and the passion of Botticelli. Hope introduced me to the Frick, which over time had become our favorite museum to visit. She also introduced me to the Museum of Modern Art. MoMA hadn't landed its permanent location in midtown Manhattan yet, but its early exhibitions offered a breathtaking glimpse into the Impressionist painters such as Cezanne, Gauguin, Surratt, and Van Gogh, as well as the abstract expressionist artists Kandinsky, Beckman, and Clay. I discovered art through Hope's eyes. I learned to see the world through Hope's eyes. We spent evenings walking in Greenwich Village, talking about culture, life, and politics. Hope had a passion for social justice, and we were both staunch trade unionists. We had come from very different backgrounds. Hope's mother had died when she was 13, and her grandparents, successful wine merchants in Manhattan, stepped in and raised her. They brought Hope up with a refined, cultured view of the world. She was Jewish, but had been sent to Catholic convent school after her mother died so she had no experience with the orthodoxy I was raised with. My days in the yeshiva and my work in progressive theater had left me questioning many of the tenets my parents still lived by. I embraced my Judaism, but was uncomfortable with the confines orthodoxy insisted on. I vividly remember the first time I ate a ham sandwich. I was 19 and studying at the Fagin School. As my teeth sunk into the thick, white bread layered with mayonnaise, lettuce, tomato, and ham. I truly wondered if I would be struck dead for my crime. I didn't die, and it was delicious. From that moment on, it was impossible for me to keep kosher. Regardless of the differences in our upbringing, Hope and I found common ground easily, and we became inseparable. We were married on February 26, 1938. Hope was 19... And I was 23. We rented a cozy flat on 4th Street in Greenwich Village. On the ground floor, a lovely woman named Kate Brignoli owned an Italian grocery store. Kate introduced Hope and me to inspiring Italian cheeses, sultry olives, and dark coffees we had never heard of, and taught us how to make her family's recipe for spaghetti sauce. That recipe became part of our family's culinary tradition and my children and grandchildren still make it to this day. Hope's grandmother, Annie Eisman, would visit us from time to time. She was an extraordinary woman, self-made and self-taught. She and Hope's grandfather, Morris, at one time, had owned six wine shops in Manhattan. They sold wines, brandies, and cordials they produced on their farms in New Jersey and California. Prohibition had taken away their fortune. They were reduced to distilling sacramental wine for religious purposes only. They were forced to close all six of their stores. Defined by an indomitable spirit, Annie would arrive at our door with an impressive stack of pink boxes from Ebbinger's, filled to the brim with cakes and pastries. I adored Annie. She and I would spend the evening singing Gilbert and Sullivan together while we munched on the sweet delights she had marched up our stairs. For the first few weeks of our marriage, I'd leave our apartment at 10 in the evening, take the 8th Avenue line, and walk to the basement of the Belasco Theater on West 44th Street. My colleagues and I were rehearsing a staged reading of a play written by the actor Peter Fry. It was an autobiographical tale about his wartime experiences as a volunteer with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade during the Spanish Civil War. The Abraham Lincoln Brigade was an eclectic group of American volunteers who joined the International Brigade in Spain to fight against the fascist dictator Francisco Franco. The International Brigade was central to Ernest Hemingway's novel For Whom the Bell Tolls. The Belasco was running a production of Irwin Shaw's The Gentle People with Sylvia Sidney, Francho Tone, Sam Jaffe, and Roman Bud Bonin. Sylvia had done a string of films in Hollywood and had returned to New York to appear on the stage. Francho had been a founding member of the group theater and was married to Joan Crawford at the time. Sam was a marvelous actor who went on to appear in The Day the Earth Stood Still and then co-starred in the television series Ben Casey in the 1960s. The owners of the Belasco let us use the basement of the theater to rehearse after hours. As soon as the curtain fell, we would begin our run-through. By then, it was close to midnight. My dear friend Bud Bonan, who over time became my mentor as an acting teacher, would come down the stairs to our underground theater to direct us, and off we'd go until the wee hours of the morning. Our cast included Martin Ritt, who went on to direct films like Hud and Norma Ray, Carl Malden and Will Lee. We were booked for Sunday afternoon performances at the Nora Bays Theater on West 44th Street. The reading went well, and we started in our second midnight project, Ben Bengal's Planet in the Sun. After that, we did Phil Stevenson's Transit, based on a prize-winning short story by Albert Maltz. We scheduled a performance of Mark Blitzstein's musical PN to the American working man Day at Orson Welles Mercury Theater. Art Smith was our director, and Carl Lerner was our stage manager. We did a run-through for Orson and he graciously offered suggestions that we eagerly incorporated into our performance. It was a heady time for theater in New York, and while we were all driven by a deep commitment to creativity and art, I cannot recall a single colleague of mine from that period who was not, to some degree, caught up with the vigor of left-wing theater. The New Theater League had been established in 1935 and was a beehive of social activism. The group set up branches in Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. A whole generation of American actors read New Theater Magazine and looked forward to the publication of innovative plays such as Odette's I Can't Sleep and Albert Maltz's Private Hicks. There were scoffers who categorized the new drama as propaganda, but slowly over time, mainstream theaters became interested in the high caliber of work coming out of our movement. Before long, Broadway was producing plays with social content by Elmer Rice, Maxwell Anderson, Clifford Odets, Sidney Kingsley, S.N. Berman, Sherwood Anderson, Sophie Treadwell, Erwin Shaw, and Robert Sherwood. It was a wonderful time to be immersed in theatre, and it seemed that new, bright plays were being written and produced almost every day. There was ample opportunity to perform in splendid productions with an equally high caliber of talented directors and composers, supported by an audience eager to be there. Film had not yet cannibalized the dreams of young actors, and our focus on craft and our desire to appear in quality theater productions seemed unending. Our interest in politics was an organic offshoot of what was going on around us. We all had experienced the poverty of the Great Depression, when it was almost impossible for anyone To have any aspirations beyond what are we going to eat for breakfast i had just turned 15 when the depression hit overnight my family was poor i knew what it was like to be hungry i remember begging my mother for money she gave me eight cents i went straight to the bakery and bought a loaf of rye bread and ate it on the spot my parents had owned our house in borough park for over 20 years and suddenly they were unable to pay the mortgage. The bank evicted us. They evicted everyone on our block. My father was a very honest man, but I think the depression did him in. We lost our house because people who owed him money couldn't pay him. What can you do about that kind of chain of events but go on anyway? What can you do but hope for a better world with better solutions? My experience was certainly not unique. Everyone in the theater scene in New York had a similar story, and unless you have a cold heart, those kinds of experiences soften you to the well-being of the everyman. We wanted everyone to be raised up and counted as valuable. As a result, we were politically aware and, more important, strongly anti-fascist. Many of us, including Hope and me, raised money on the street corners in Manhattan to support our friends who had joined the Abraham Lincoln brigade. We believed in the abundance of the world around us and understood the plight of the worker. We also believed art could make a difference in people's lives. If that made us political, then indeed we were. Harry Hopkins was the director of President Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration, WPA. The WPA and its sister project, the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, put thousands of Americans back to work during the Depression. The WPA constructed bridges, roads, and hundreds of marvelous buildings all across America that are still in use today. The CCC focused on America's natural resources and constructed national and state parks. It also planted nearly three billion trees to help reforest America. Fortunately, Harry Hopkins also believes society had an obligation to support the arts and made the astute observation to President Roosevelt that unemployed actors are as hungry as anybody else. To address this concern, Roosevelt created the Federal Theater Project in 1935. The Federal Theater was not a revolutionary idea. As early as the 1800s, there had been strong support for theater in the United States. Our first theater structures were built in the port cities of Charleston, South Carolina, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, and the great British stars of the 19th century, such as John Philip Kemble and his sister Sarah Siddons, William McCready, Edmund Keane, Sir Henry Irving, and Ellen Terry, would present premier performances before taking their plays on the road to the newer towns sprouting up toward the West. American stars such as Joseph Jefferson, Edwin Booth, Clara Morris, James O'Neill, Julia Marlowe, Minnie Maddern Fisk, Charlotte Cushman, Adelaide Nielsen, Lily Langtree, Lola Montez, and John McCullough soon followed suit. In Democracy in America, written in 1835 by Alexis de Tocqueville, the French historian and social commentator observed that even in the wild frontiers nearly every house he visited had a Bible, and a few odd volumes of Shakespeare. He further observed that the size of audiences attending Shakespearean plays in the United States far exceeded that of British audiences. This familiarity with Shakespeare served Americans for many generations and allowed the reading public to get and laugh at Mark Twain's Dauphin in Huckleberry Finn, as well as the random extracts from Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, and King Lear. Twain wove into his mongrelized soliloquies. This curiosity and commitment was still true in 1935. It was a time in America when art in all its forms was viewed as a necessity, and going to see live theater was part of the fabric of everyday life. My friends and I were ecstatic when we heard about the formation of the Federal Theater and signed up to work. My first assignment was in 1937. With a traveling circus. I played the suitor, Lomov, in clown makeup for Chekhov's one act farce, A Marriage Proposal. We performed for free in public parks all over New York City to enthusiastic crowds. Our big time date was in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village, just a few blocks away from where Hope and I would eventually live. After we were married, the Federal Theater assigned me. The role of one of the four narrators in George Sklar's Expressionistic Life and Death of an American at the Maxine Elliott Theater. J. Arthur Kennedy, who later went on to win a Tony award for the role of Biff in Death of a Salesman on Broadway, played the lead. The production was very inventive for its time and included multimedia projections, jazz, vaudeville, singing and dancing, all interlaced with the story of a World War I veteran who was shot and killed by the police while picketing at a steel mill. The play was based on the true story of a 1936 Memorial Day shooting of 12 trade unionists who demonstrated outside Republic Steel in Chicago. Life and death of an American and other federal theater productions that urged social action drew attention to corporate insensitivity and the rights of the American worker. These productions were also lightning rods for conservatives in Congress who supported corporate greed. In 1938, the House Un American Activities Committee, HUAC, chaired by Congressman Martin Dyes of Texas, aggressively went after President Roosevelt's federal arts programs. The committee searched out a small number of witnesses who testified that communists were running the federal theater. Writers, actors, musicians, directors, and scene designers spontaneously organized protest meetings. After the final curtain calls in Broadway houses, the stars of almost every play would step forward and urge audiences to protest HUAC by joining them at midnight protest meetings. One night, I attended a particularly impassioned actors' equity meeting at the Music Box Theater that was chaired by Raymond Massey and Tallulah Bankhead. Raymond had just starred on Broadway in Abe Lincoln in Illinois, and Tallulah was starring in Lillian Hellman's Little Foxes on Broadway. Their input gave great weight to the cause. As the meeting ended, the entire gathering rose to its feet en masse and joined up with another equally spontaneous meeting that had gathered at Times Square. Along the way, mounted police graciously cooperated and directed traffic to alternative routes so that we could make our way in peace. Hallie Flanagan, the national director of the Federal Theater Project, wrote repeatedly to Chairman Dyes, asking for an opportunity to reply to the allegations of communism, but it was months before she was finally allowed to appear. When she did, one committee member, Congressman Joe Starnes from Alabama, referred to an article Flanagan had written, for Theatre Arts magazine, in which she described the emergence of trade union theatres and their enthusiasm as having a Marlowesque madness. "'You are quoting from this Marlowe?' observed Starnes. "'Is he a communist? "'Tell us who Marlowe is, so we can get the proper reference.' Starnes then asked Flanagan whether this Mr. Euripides was also a communist. Starnes, ignorant as the day is long, was referring to William Shakespeare's contemporary Christopher Marlowe and to the classical Greek playwright Euripides, who died in 406 B.C. In her book, Arena, The History of the Federal Theater, Flanagan bemoaned the danger of Starnes' ignorance. The room rocked with laughter, but I did not laugh. Eight thousand people might lose their jobs because a congressional committee has so prejudged us that even the classics were communistic. Later that year, the Federal Theater was skewered by Dyes and his committee when they convinced Congress to cancel the Federal Theater's funding. Overnight, more than 12,000 actors, musicians, chorus girls, stagehands, customers, writers, and directors who had produced more than 2,700 stage productions for their fellow Americans lost their jobs. I was one of them. The Federal Theater's four-year existence had offered dignified employment to many whose work had evaporated because of the combined forces of the Depression and the success of the talkies. In the days before talkies, in movie theaters across America, live vaudeville acts performed before the silent films began. This offered a living wage to thousands of American artists. The Motion Picture Almanac states that in 1932, close to 14,000 silent movie houses that had once booked live vaudeville shows were wired for sound and the live pre-shows the public once adored were sacked. Indifferent to the job losses, Congressman Dyes saw the utility of red-baiting and used it to attack President Roosevelt's entire Works Project administration. Using the demise of the Federal Theater Project as his linchpin, he went after the WPA. In time, thousands of American workers in a myriad of professions, from bricklayers to machinists, carpenters to electricians, lost their jobs in the wake of his aggressive and mean-spirited witch-hunt. Like those of his later counterpart, Senator Joseph McCarthy, many, if not all of Dyes' accusations about communists and government programs proved to be untrue. The damage had been done, however. With the evaporation of the Federal Theater, I counted myself lucky when I found work promoting the Berkeley Marionettes, a group that performed in public schools in New York and New Jersey. This brought in a very scant wage. Hope had steady work as a secretary in a Wall Street consulting firm, and her income sustained us for many months, but acting was beginning to seem futile. My father owned a sash, door, and trim factory in Brooklyn. So I enrolled in a blueprint reading course at the Brooklyn Engineering Institute with a plan to find employment in the construction industry. Although it was a bitter pill, I was determined to find solvency in some other area and was ready to forgo the unstable life of an actor. Hope presented another plan. And, of course, that was... Chapter Two of uh, Improvising Out Loud: My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act by Jeff Corey and Emily Corey. In December, I hope to play more of this. And uh, like I said uh, in the beginning today, there have been some developments, so you know there's going to be some shifting around. Uh, there might be weeks. There might be weeks that I can't put the podcast on. I don't think that'll happen, but it's more likely it'll be on a different day. So bear with me. Um, so any anyway, anyway, that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends. Be sure to email me at tomreadsyourstory at yahoo dot com or call nine two nine two six zero nineteen fifty two. That's 929-260-1952 if you have questions or comments about the show. As always, thanks to Anchor.fm for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.